Welcome, adventurers. The end of a fight has come to its swift conclusion. But Sarkeesian had picked sides purely on her impressions. Were they correct? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Sarkeesian wasn't quite sure what to make of it all, but the black-bearded dwarf was moving up quickly, placing a hand on the gray-eyed man's shoulder. Svig, thanks, Honor, for your help, he said in a sincere tone. These men won't be under long. Do you have a rope or cloth, something we can bind and gag them with? The urgency with which the dwarf spoke seemed to infect the unlikely ally. Of course. Rope was retrieved and an old cloak was cut into strips. For people who did not know one another, they worked together quickly and efficiently. As they finished tying up the fallen, the black-bearded dwarf chattered on. All right, Svig, if this is left unresolved, these are going to find you and kill you, he said with a gesture to the newly restrained. It wasn't hard to believe as the widow-peaked man was now awake and staring death at them. You need to go as quick as you can to the nearest Trinagus office. You're involved, so you can't exactly walk in, but leave him a note. Explain where this place is, and then find a place to lie low. The grey-eyed man nodded, as if this all made sense. We, the dwarf continued, are going to take Quindon here, and pointed to the frightened man, and skip town. He was going to help save you, but when old widow's peak here found out, he threatened to kill his family. We got to get him to safety. Another nod. All right, quick then, straight away. The faster we go, the safer we all are. One last check to make sure all the knots and gags were tied tight, and then Sfig stood, clasped the black-beard one's hand, gave him a meaningful nod, and then fled from the room. The black-bearded dwarf went to the door and peered out, apparently verifying Sveg's departure. Without coming back to them, he turned, looking for a beat at each of them. His eyes lingered a moment longer on Sarkeesian. We need to hurry. In three-quarters of a bill, Sveg is going to realize we did not have his best interest in mind. I'd prefer to be long gone from here when that occurs. An awkward pause his eyes still on her. You coming with us, stranger? And then, under his breath, blessing of Manublar. Sarkeesian squinted. Oh, we are not parting ways until some questions have been answered. The caster gave a curt nod. Sarkeesian looked at the sword in her hand, and after a moment's consideration, tossed it on the ground. The fork-bearded one hadn't spoken since the fighting ended, standing now near the recently freed man for whom all this madness had started. The look of fear still dominated the man's face. It was clear, whatever was going on here, he was in over his head. They moved outside, then out of the courtyard, then 
to the mouth of the alley. Pausing here, they looked out into the street. No sign of anyone. Before the worry of how many turns they would get before Sarkeesian could not recall the correct route, had time to even take hold, the fork-bearded one moved out ahead and grumbled. Keep up. It turned out her fear from earlier in the evening, the concern that the dwarves wouldn't be competent trackers, was beyond unfounded. In fact, it was patently false. The fork-bearded one led them unerringly back the way they came. They moved with a purpose at a pace just shy of a jog. And the trip, which had taken a little over a half bell on the way in, took just over a quarter bell on the way out. Passing back through the same footgate, which had been the portal to this evening's wild happenings, the fork-bearded one paused, but only a beat, to look back at the black-bearded one. Another nod, and he started again. As the fork-bearded one led, the other dwarf fell back beside her with his odd stride. They had been silent as they made their way out of the old town, but at last the dwarf spoke. I've no idea who you're, unless of one why you would be helping us. His hand went to his neck. But I think sooner, Maniblor, on Manirud, you did. Sarkeesian didn't respond. An embarrassed smile came over the dwarf's face. We were just trying to do some good. Help an acquaintance who had made some mistakes and was about to pay an unfair price. The dwarf's eyes fell on the back of the man whom they had rescued. He was a few paces ahead now, keeping up with their guide. Her walking partner cleared his throat, and then, in low tones, the story of how all this came to be unfolded. Quinton, whom they had just saved, was a groundskeeper at the Beer Mitre Academy. Colborn, that was the dwarf's name with whom she was now talking, was studying magic at said academy. It turned out Colborn had made a passing acquaintance with Quinton and often stopped between classes to talk to him as he tended the flowers. Sarkeesian wasn't sure why, but there was something in the dwarf's voice when he talked about the tending of the flowers. Irreverence. Sadness. She wasn't sure. It was just a feeling she had. On a day after Quinton had been inexplicably gone for nearly a week, Colborn had seen him lurking outside the academy walls. He seemed in great distress. Given their friendly interactions, Colborn had approached him and inquired after his well-being. Quinton had almost fled, but after much hand-wringing and uncertainty, the groundskeeper had finally shared his plight with him. The man's wife had taken their young son west to Vishbon to visit her family. Quinton, being without obligations for a time, had gotten a yearning to revisit his youth. He made his way round to see some old friends, and after a few too many ales, one had recalled a taverna in the old town, one near the river docks where they had drank in their youth. They all decided what a grand idea a visit to the old town would be, and so they went. In their inebriated state, they couldn't find the fabled taverna, but found some dingy bar a few streets back from the river and called it close enough. At some point, Quinton, who had never played cards before in his life, had been dared by his friends to sit down at a table with some rough-looking types 
and make a few wagers. None believed he would do it, it being a ridiculous joke instead. But with the false courage of alcohol in some ill-conceived ghost of his youth, Quinton had indeed sat down at that table. And then the most amazing thing had happened. He had won, won a large sum of money. When he had been playing for a bell or more, his friends had begun to make grumblings about the time of night and having things to do on the morrow. Quinton, staring like a dragon over his hoard, was reluctant to leave and bid them a good evening. He would come round tomorrow and let them all know where his new house in the garden district was. They all laughed and made their goodbyes. It was when his friends had left that the winning had stopped. Slowly at first, and then his pile of winnings began to flow away from him like a spilled drink. And then it was all gone. He was shocked, but the man to his left, a dark-haired man with a widow's peak, had bought him a drink, and with a caring hand on the shoulder told him Cinder's mischief could be hard to understand sometimes. He offered to lend him ten gold so he could keep playing if he wished. It was such a kind offer, and with those ten gold he knew there was still time to win some of his hoard back. But he lost those ten and then another. The night had descended into a drunken, panicky nightmare. He barely remembered his stumbling journey home. He knew the man had given him a paper and kept saying something about two days. It was a short road from there to the events which had occurred this very night. Quinton had woke to find he had a hold of an IOU for 456 gold due two days hence. He didn't have four hundred gold. Nowhere near. He wasn't sure what to do. He had spent the day homesick, both from the night's drinking and from an unrelenting worry. He had no recollection of losing anything beyond the first twenty or thirty. The thugs had come the next day to collect. Quinton didn't have it. Surely there was something they could work out. Looking about, the gray-eyed one, Sveg, was noting the state of the house. Don't live alone, do you? Family, he said as he made his way across the room and picked up a wooden toy figure of a baker. Quinton was ill all over again. He was given three more days to come up with the money, and for that privilege the total owed was rounded to an even five hundred. He was warned that he would be watched, and that if he tried to leave town he would regret it. Sveg also said if he didn't come up with the money in the next three days, he would have more than himself to worry about. This statement had been punctuated with a wood toy being snapped in half. It was near the end of this time that Colborne had found Quinton. He was paralyzed with fear. He knew he couldn't go to the Trine Aegis. One, because they would have little care for a gambling debt accrued while drunk in the old town. And secondly, who knew what the thugs would do to him or his family if they saw him go to the authorities. His wife and child would be home in another three or four days. He was standing outside the gates here because he was trying to work himself up to go talk to the faculty of the academy. 
Maybe something could be done with magic. Colborne had started Quinton and himself walking, and had him tell the whole story, every last bit he could recall, twice. When the gardener had finished, Colborne had shared his thoughts. He had been set up, set up and swindled. But what did that matter, Quinton had asked. Swindled or not, his family and himself were in danger. Colborne had thought a bit, and then told him not to worry. He would help. He just needed to come up with a plan. And that leads us to tonight, Colborne finished. Sarkeesian shook her head. The amount of trouble in all the lands that started with let's go out for a few drinks could build a mountain range. She had seen alcohol ruin people's lives, change their very being. They had been walking almost half a bell now in a generally northerly direction. They were still in the lamp district, but only just. Another few bars, ten at most, and they would be into the district arcana, where many of the magical academies and research facilities in Jamato resided. This included the Beer Mitre Academy, which the dwarf attended. A couple streets shy of the district wall, they turned east down a lane of tall, narrow row houses. They stopped at the sixth one on the left. Forkbeard produced a key and unlocked the door. They all shuffled in. One room wide, the ground floor consisted of a kitchen, a small sitting area, and some stairs up to the next floor. It was an odd scene. The kitchen was spotless and well organized. But as you crossed the invisible line into the sitting area, it was as if a gale wind had blown through. Books and scrolls were piled everywhere, open, shut, wrinkled. There were clothes as well, draped over the small couch and chair. Plates that were clearly ostracized from their more organized neighbors hid among the clutter. The door shut behind Sarkeesian as she was taking it all in. Colborne pushed past her. Quinton, can we get you anything? Food? Water? The man still looked as if he was in a stupor. It took the question a moment to register, but finally he turned his head and shook it now. Would you like to lay down, then? There's an extra bed upstairs. Colborne followed up. Again, a delayed response, but then he nodded in an affirmative. Yes. Yes, I would like to lay down. Colborne stepped to the man. It's going to be fine. Tomorrow, me and Kulfin will take you to the house and gather your things. Then we will make our way to Vishbon. Once you are safely with your family, we will talk about what comes next. The man looked at the dwarf, and then tears formed in the corner of his eyes. He nodded again and was able to get out the words, Thank you, before making his way to the stairs. The fork-bearded one, Colfin, Sarkeesian now presumed, followed him up. Sarkeesian watched them ascend the steep steps, and when she could hear footfalls scuffing on the floor above, her eyes fell and found Colborn. The moment her eyes met his, another flush came across his face, another tired smile, and then he averted his gaze. He spoke all the same. This would be the part where you are expecting some more answers. 
Sarkeesian crossed her arms over her chest. Yes, that is the part we are at. Colborn was turning away from her. A weary chuckle escaped him. His gait seemed even more stiff than it had most of the night. Well, he more than earned them, he said as he made the wheelchair. He turned again and slumped into the chair with a sigh of relief. I would ask that we wait just a moment longer. Corfin should be back down in a moment once he has Quintin sailed. I think he should be part of this. Even as the dwarf spoke, he was tugging his cloak off and tossing it into the sea of chaos. Next, his hands went to a wide brace at his waist and popped a large buckle. Sarkeesian was surprised to see the dwarf wore a dark set of plate armor on his legs, unusual for a caster. Then the dwarf moved one of his legs. It was accompanied by the faintest whirring noise. She could also see various parts near the joints moving. Despite herself, one of her eyebrows raised in surprise. The gearbender? she asked. Colborn nodded, knocking on a plated thigh with one hand. Truly amazing. Had them just over a month. Well, Sarkeesian thought, that explains the stiff gait, but adds a question or two to the list. There were footfalls on the stairs, and the fork-bearded one, Colfin, returned. Without acknowledging either of them, he made his way to the kitchen, fetched some cups from a shelf, and then a bottle. He clunked the cups down on a small butcher block island, unstoppered the bottle, and then poured two glasses. When he got to the third, he looked up, finally toward Sarkeesian, raising the bottle in a question. She held out a hand. No, thank you. But I wouldn't say no to some tea, if you have it. Colfin frowned, and then, with a grunt and a shrug, he stoppered the bottle, returning it to the shelf. He squatted by a small stove in the corner, opened it, rekindled a fire from some coals burning within. The fire was fed some more fuel. The door was closed, and a kettle scooted into place atop the stove. Colfin then took both cups, bringing one to Colborn, before slouching down on the messy couch. He raised the glass with another grunt, and then threw its contents back in one go. Colborn took a more refined sip of his drink, and then gestured to Sarkeesian with it. Well, while we wait for the kettle to sing, you might as well begin with what questions you will. Where to even start? She moved to the wall by the door and propped her back up against it. Tonight, she began after a moment. This type of activity you two usually partake in? Colfin glowered. Colborn flushed. No. Colborn said, opened his mouth as if to say something else, but then shut it. Given the night's events and how it would have gone had she not shown up, she knew the answer was no, but she wanted to hear them say it. And you realize if it weren't for Garion's own miracle, the both of you would be dead, and maybe your friend upstairs as well. Colfin's face grew darker still, Colborn's redder. Yes. I do see that now. And then, by way of excuse or explanation, you weren't expecting as many men to come for Quinton as did. Sarkeesian sniffed. Clearly. There were a few beats of uncomfortable silence. 
before Colborn spoke again. We were just trying to help. Quentin didn't deserve to have his life ruined that way. After hearing the story, Sarkeesian agreed. But these two seemed ill-equipped to be the ones to deal with it. And it irritated her to think how close they had come to death. And what makes you think you were the ones to help? Colborn's embarrassment shifted toward indignance. Look, my brother was a well-respected member of the Hearthkeepers, and I... A flustered pause. I am learning magic. What would you have us done? Stand by and do nothing? There ain't enough trained aegis in the city to protect all who need it. Sarkeesian laughed. So you two are going to what? Become some sort of vigilantes? Finding problems and injustices too small for the authorities and take care of them yourselves? Colborn took the rebuke with good grace and sat tall in his chair. Make fun of us if you wish, but we are trying to be. We want to be a force for good. That's all well and good that there are authorities in the city, but they can't go everywhere, see every little thing that goes wrong. On the couch, Colfin's frown had disappeared, and his eyes were locked on her. It may seem silly to you, and it may not be much, but who knows what two more sets of eyes can do. Every extra set of eyes is another torch, another lantern, to cast light in the dark places, to help where it is needed. Four beats passed in silence. Hills, Coborn picked up. If it wasn't for your eyes tonight, as you said, we would be dead. Sarkeesian didn't respond. She was shocked into silence. Not by the words Colborn spoke, but by an abrupt realization about the feeling inside of her, or the particular lack of one specific feeling. The unease. The unease was gone. In its absence, something warm was growing. A contentment. A purpose. To cast light in the dark places. To help where it is needed. Gorion, have mercy. Sarkeesian pushed herself away from the wall. She looked into Colfin's eyes. There was a steel in them, and then into Colborn's. Sincerity, a promise to be kept. Well, she said, if that is the road you are going to walk, and you're going to need someone with a little more experience to help you along the way. And now we have seen how the threads of Sarkeesian and the brothers Colborn and Colfin first met, though there are many more tales to tell of their adventures together. Stay tuned next week for the beginning of a new tale. Hey, people, it is the beginning of season five. So amazing to me. Uh, I am so happy you are here. Uh, good things are happening with downloads. And uh, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Uh, I really appreciate you. Uh, if you have the time and you have the energy, it means the world to me. And I think it helps bring those more listeners in, which is happening. Two new brand new reviews have come in recently. Uh, the listens are up. And all of this is just amazing uh, news for me. And I hope for you as well, because it means uh, the show will keep on going. <laughs> anyway, if you have time to drop a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you might be listening, it really does matter to me. Uh, I appreciate you all so very, very much, and we'll see you next week with the beginning of a new story. Thanks, and take care.